How are we doing? Corey is always excited, man. How's everybody else doing? <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. I am um, I'm coming in hot. I don't know if we can get it somehow down, but I think it might be Channel 1, Channel 2, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, but, but yeah, um, real quick show of hands. How many of you have prayed this prayer before? Okay. Everybody in the room. There are very few people probably in this city who hasn't prayed this prayer before, right? I mean, we've all at some point in time have prayed this prayer before. Let's, let's see another quick show of hands. How many of you, every single time you prayed this prayer, you knew what each line of this prayer actually meant? Okay. All right. There we go. That's what we hope to get to the bottom of today. We hope to actually find out what does, it, what does the Lord's Prayer actually mean? We call it the Lord's Prayer, but we probably would do just as well calling it the Lord's model for prayer. It's really not a prayer necessarily for Jesus to pray. It's a prayer for his disciples and followers to pray. After all, the prayer says um, that we are to be forgiven of our debts. And we know Jesus himself has no debts to be forgiven of. And so in the, in the gospel of Luke chapter 11 verse 1, this prayer is introduced after the following, following request is made. Luke chapter 11 verse 1, now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples. And Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray with this prayer. So this prayer is a lesson in prayer. Now in thinking about, the, the, in, in thinking about the, the, its place in the Gospel of Matthew, what we have to notice is that this lesson in prayer for Jesus is built into the first sermon in Matthew. The first sermon in Matthew is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 of Matthew and it ends... And concludes all in, in chapter 7 of Matthew. Some folks have made this sermon, this sermon on the mount that Jesus preaches, out to be something that we should not really even look to imitate. They say it's too high, it's too lofty to pursue, but Jesus fulfills it perfectly. So let's just place our trust in him. Let's let him do it. We'll just look to him and say, praise, praise Jesus for he fulfills all of these commandments that he lays out in this sermon. Now, there's certainly a measure of truth to that. None of us will follow and obey the Sermon on the Mount perfectly, but, and, and Jesus does, in fact, perfectly uh, perform all the commandments that he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. But it is more than just a sermon to watch Jesus live out. The sermon is the first significant glimpse in, in Matthew that we get as to what it looks like to have a new life in Christ. It's the first significant glimpse that we begin to see that helps us understand what does it mean to live in the newness that Jesus has purchased for us when he died on the cross. It is a way of deprogramming our old ways. It's a way of, it's a way of deprogramming our old values. It's a way of unlearning our old attitudes. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It is inviting us to view this world and our lives with a kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God lens. And this is how one theologian puts 
this, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in quote, no one can perfectly perform the vision of the sermon except Jesus, but this doesn't mean it's irrelevant to our lives. By faith and through grace, Jesus is inviting us into a practical life of discipleship. We participate in and imperfectly imitate his father-trusting, kingdom-awaiting way of being in the world. Now, the sermon isn't all that we need to know or all that is true of the gospel. The end game of the gospel story is the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Through his faithfulness, he brings about a new covenant between God and humanity. And on this basis alone, empowered by the Spirit, we're made alive. And all of this is by grace. This is essential. But now standing in this grace, believers respond to Jesus' invitation in the sermon. Our habits and our ways of being are deconstructed and reformed through his teachings and his model. Being a disciple is the appropriate and necessary response to God's amazing grace. And the sermon plays a crucial role in that, end quote. We stand in this grace, and now we are going to begin to follow Jesus in light of this grace. And the Sermon on the Mount is a way that we learn how to follow Jesus. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is about taking the grace that we've been given in salvation through Christ and allowing that grace to reshape and reform our attitudes. These same motivations are present when we turn to the sermon's exhortations or the sermon's discussions with us about prayer. It's about reshaping our understanding of prayer. It's about giving us a kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven focus when we think about prayer. Now this obviously is perfect for us because that's all we've been talking about the last couple of weeks is prayer, having our minds reshaped, having our, having our understanding reformed around prayer. And it's a perfect way for us to end it because who knows how to pray better than Jesus, right? And so Jesus is here giving us a model as it relates to how we should actually pray. But he starts his lesson in prayer dealing with the very motivations behind praying. So there's motivations this morning, and then there's the model. In other words, when you talk about the motivations, the question that you're asking is what is moving you to pray? Because what is moving you to pray has just as much potential of being or has just as much potential of being impactful as what you pray. What's moving you to pray has the potential to be just as impactful as what you pray. You understand that? Praying is not the problem in verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8, the problem is motivation. The motivation is driving the prayers are the problem. They're praying in verses 5 through 8, but they're praying with the wrong motivations. First, Jesus deals with the motivation of being seen. When you look at verse 5, he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand. And they love to pray in the synagogues. And they love to pray at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, pray to be seen by God, not seen by man. When we pray, we must pray to be seen by God, not to be seen by man. Jesus is not condemning public prayer. He is condemning the craving for exposure in public prayer. He's, cra he's, he's condemning the craving or the pursuit for attention when you pray. Jesus is speaking to those who secretly crave the, intent, the attention their prayers will generate more than the fellowship with God that it will create. 
They are interested in praying as much as they are interested in being seen praying. It's been said that these hypocrites that Jesus are, is describing here would have, de- would have had designated hours to pray, and they would intentionally be in the most public place possible during those designated hours so they would have to stop whatever they were doing and lift their hands and silently, with their eyes closed, pray so that everybody would see. Making a show of prayer rather than actually praying. See, sometimes we carry a desire to be seen as prayers more than we actually carry the desire to be prayers, right? Sometimes we find it way more beneficial to say to someone, brother, I'm going to pray for you, right? Than to actually pray for them, right? I mean, how many times have we actually said, I will pray for you and don't pray for the person? But we feel like it's really, really holy to say that, so, so we'll say it. Brother, yeah, man, I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be praying for you. Our prayer, our prayer list, think about how large our prayer list should be, right? Think about how many times we have told someone we will pray for them. Our prayer list should be like miles long as many times as we've told somebody we would pray for them. And how many times have we actually prayed for these people. We ourselves, we know that prayer is a noble thing, and, and so sometimes, sometimes we want to be a people that is seen as noble. And we know that prayer is a praiseworthy thing, and so sometimes we want to be a people that, is, that are praised because we're being known as a people of prayer. However, this posture shows us that while we may masquerade as people close to God. We are not yet convinced that being near him is truly a good thing. When we say, I'll pray for you, or when we tell somebody, yeah, man, I've been praying about that, knowing we haven't been praying about it, what we've convinced ourselves is that it's better to be seen as someone who is close to God than to actually be near God. The hypocrite is criticized for standing in the most public place possible in hopes that he might be celebrated praying. And Jesus says these people have their reward. And what is the reward that they have? They have the praise and the affirmation that they seek. These people, when they get in the streets and they lift their hands and in silence pray to God, there are people around that say, man, he is such a godly person. Or, man, did you see... Did you see her praying? She is so godly. They get to be known as praiseworthy people. They get to be known as noble people. They get to be known as spiritual people. They get to be known as good people without actually getting to fellowship with God. Now, the more I've reflected on this, the more alarmed I am by it. Because Jesus seems to be pointing to this type of religious practice where a person can have no true fellowship with him while at the same time receiving praise from everybody else for having fellowship with him. In other words, there's a way to practice Christianity that yields all sorts of praise and accolades from the people around you, pats on the back from people who are observing you, while at the same time being no closer to God than the heathen who is cursing him on the street. That's alarming to me. 
But what's even more alarming is how easily we can allow that praise that comes from men to convince us that we are close to God. If we hear that praise coming from people long enough, we ourselves begin to buy the hype. And we know we ain't praying. And we know we're not seeking his face. And we know we haven't, we haven't even made an appeal to him in months. But we got people telling us that we're really, really close to Jesus. And so we tend to ride that wave and say, yeah, I, I, actually I am. It's not that bad. Bottom line, we can kind of live this kind of public Christianity that has people all around us thinking that we are killing it with our relationship with God when the reality is we don't have, we don't have anything with him. How do we avoid this? Jesus tells us in, in the next verse, he says, but when you pray, go into your room. Shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. In order to avoid this hypocritical Christian life, we must seek God's grace to pursue stronger fellowship with him in private than we pursue in public. Don't wait until Sunday morning to express your undying love for Jesus. Express it tonight before you go to sleep. Express it in the morning when you wake up. Express it in the middle of the day when there's no one else around you and you're just riding in your car. Don't wait until social media to declare your commitment to Christ. In the privacy of your own home, make your de declaration to him clear. This is living life without the mask of hypocrisy. This is what brings us near to God in fellowship. I recall growing up as a kid, my father used to drive us around and unprompted, he would say, Jesus, I give you praise. Unprompted. There would be nothing going on. I'd be looking around like, what just happened? We missed a car? We almost got hit? What happened? You know, what, what just happened? Unprompted. Father, I give you praise. Unprompted. Lord, I give you glory. And I began to realize as I grew older that he was just, he was just in. He was locked in. He was locked in while he was driving, and we were just kind of doing our thing, and me, me and my little sister doing our thing, completely oblivious. He's locked in, seeking the face of God, praying, talking to the Lord in ways I don't even know about. And there's nobody around to pat him on the back and say, oh, EJ, you're so spiritual. He's in his prayer closet. That's what it means to be in a prayer closet. When nobody's around, it's just you and God. You still got fellowship with him. You still got relationship with him. This is the motivation that drives you to the Lord's prayer as a model. But then he talks about this second motivation that, that, that in verse 7 it says, And when you pray, do not heap empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so that second motivation, the first motivation is to, is to pray to be seen by God, not to pray to be seen by man. But that second motivation is to pray to be impressed by God, not to impress God. Pray when you go to, when you go to God in prayer, you go to God in awe of him, not trying to make him gain awe in you. Not to say, hey, if I use enough big words, he'll pay attention. 
If I can get all my theological jargon in this prayer, he's going to be listening to me. No, you pray to be impressed by him, not to try to make him impressed by you. He says the Gentiles, they, 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 they are heaping up all these fancy phrases, but they're empty phrases to me. They don't have any significance. They don't have any meaning. They don't have any power. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't have to be impressive in front of him. Just be authentic. Just be real. And then Jesus shows us what realness looks like in the kingdom. He gives us just this simple model to follow when we pray. Verse 9, we begin to think about this model, and the first thing that comes to mind is that when we pray, we should pray as we are praying in relationship. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. We pray with knowledge that God is in the heavens, right? The Bible says that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And so it, it's, it's a reality. When we think about God in the heavens, we think about the reality that God is, in fact, above all. He's beyond all. This communicates divinity to us. He is not like us. He is beyond us. And this is very important for us to realize and very important for us to understand. And yet it does not mean that he is too distant and too removed from us. Because it says our Father who is in heaven. Not just simply our God who is in heaven, but our Father who is in heaven. In other words, he's divine and yet he is relational with us. He is near to us. There's two relational words in this, in, in this very small phrase, our Father is in heaven. The first relational word is Father. God is Father, provider, protector, teacher, disciplinarian, leader, guide. We see these attributes on clear display in the 23rd Psalm when David speaks of God in a very relational way as shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Provider. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Disciplinarian, yea, though I walk through the valley in the shadow of death. Protector, he leads me beside the still waters for his namesake. Leader in God. Jesus is encouraging us to go to his Father while remembering the relationship that has been established for us with him through Christ, which leads to the second important relational word, our. He is not just a Father, he is our Father. As believers saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have genuine fellowship and relationship with God as Father, when we pray, our words and our posture before God should reflect this reality that he is our Father. Matthew chapter 7, when, when Jesus is talking uh, as he's moving through this Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew chapter 7 that you should ask and it will be given to you. Seeking you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who acts receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if a son asks for ask him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see that? Jesus makes the connection to father. He says not only is he a father, but he is our father. And not only is he our father, but he is a good father. And so you can go to him in relationship knowing that he is a good father, never looking to give you anything that would harm you. 
We can go to him with confidence that he desires to, to aid us. We can go to him with confidence that he loves us. We can go to him with confidence that he desires to answer his children in a way that is ultimately best for us. Because he is father and he is a good father. So when you pray, pray in knowledge of your relationship with him. But also as, a, as part of the model, he teaches us, Jesus does, to pray for his glory. He says, pray then like this, our, God, our father who, uh, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we remember God as a good and righteous father, we must also remember that he is not simply a father. He is a holy and righteous God of the universe, worthy of all praise, worthy of all glory, worthy of all honor. And so in this model that Christ shares with his, his disciples, we ask that God's name be glorified and God's name be honored before we ask for anything for ourselves. One commentary uh, writer summarizes this request well when he says this, quote, the first petition in the prayers for the glory and honor of God. It ought to be first and foremost um, our, of our, I'm sorry, it ought to be the first and foremost aim of our life to glorify God. Our praying should be more than give me, but should include a prominent desire for God to be honored, end quote. How much different would your prayer life be if they all started with the first desire for God to be glorified? What do you think would change in your prayers? Would your request change? If the prayer started with God be glorified, I got a feeling that some of the things we asked for, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even ask. We would have different asks. We would go to him with different things because the first desire would be for God to be glorified. It would, it would change the very fabric of what we pray. Would your contentment change if, if you realize that as you are speaking, God be glorified, that even in some of the circumstances and situations that you're working through, that he is still receiving glory through it? And so would you find contentment and, be, and peace and be able to say, well, God, you be glorified even in the midst of what I'm going through? Would you move from more of God, I need this from you, to God, what do you need from me? What do you desire from me? Jesus appears to desire this sort of paradigm shift in our prayer because he places this request first. God, you be glorified. God, hallowed be your name. So when you pray, pray for his glory. But when you pray, also pray for his kingdom. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here Jesus instructs us to pray for the full manifestation of God's divine reign in heaven and on earth. And the full manifestation of God's divine intent in heaven and on earth. Here we are praying for what God wants. And we are praying that God moves on the hearts of those around us on this earth so that they begin to seek the same thing. We are praying for God to get everything he wants. Not just in the future when Jesus comes back, but now. God, your reign in heaven. Your reign on earth. God, your will in heaven. God, your will on earth. Now this is a request that requires much trust. 
And this is a request that requires much selflessness. See, to pray your kingdom and your will requires that you trust that his kingdom and his will is good. But also to pray your kingdom and your will requires that you are all right with his kingdom and his will overthrowing your kingdom and your will. You tracking with that? See, sometimes we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. When secretly, we don't want any of that. Right? Because if God told us that your kingdom, your kingdom will, I mean, your kingdom and your will meant that we weren't going to get that promotion, we'd be like, well, wait a second. Your kingdom and your will after I get that promotion. Right? And so the reality is, is that sometimes we don't want any of those prayers that we're praying. But this is, the, this is, this is again, Jesus deprogramming us of our old ways, our old values, our old attitudes, and teaching us how to see the world in the same way God sees it, and to desire what God desires, and to rejoice at God's reign, even if God's reign requires that we come down off the throne to rejoice at God's will being done in our lives, even if God's will being done in our lives requires that we lose control of our lives. This is a prayer that requires us to get out of the way. And sometimes that's hard to actually desire. But when we pray this prayer, we are asking the Lord to overrule our desires if they are not in line with his. I mean, sometimes I'm just being honest with y'all. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, just, I want you to do it, kind of, so help me where I don't want you to do it, right? I want you to do it, so help me where I don't want you to do it. Give me the desire to want what you want, no matter what that means to me, no matter what that means for me. The other point that you need to take away from this prayer or this particular request is that it is happening and it will happen. It's happening now, but that is also coming. See, Jesus is coming back and, and the full culmination and the full manifestation of his kingdom reign will take place. And there is no doubt about it. You don't have to pray this prayer. It's still going to happen. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His reign, his will, his intent is being fulfilled, whether you want it to be fulfilled or not. Jesus will come back, and when Jesus comes back, all that was wrong will be righted. And all that, all, all that God desires will, or, or desires for this world will come to realization, will come to manifestation, and his reign will be complete. And so it's happening, or, it's, or it will happen, and yet it is happening. And theologians call this the already not yet. There's parts of God's kingdom where it's happening and there's parts of God's kingdom that is coming. And so when we talk about the part that is coming, we need to understand that we play a part, the church plays a part in that. When we pray your kingdom come, you will be done. We're praying for God to mobilize us. We're praying for God to send us. We're praying for God to ignite us so that we would be a part, or that we would play a part in his kingdom expanding in this world. And so as you pray that prayer, how are you serving that prayer? How are you serving and manifesting the reign of God? 
in the will of God, in your life, in your heart, and in the lives of those around you. When you love your neighbor, you are taking part in spreading kingdom reign. And so how are you loving your neighbor these days? When you share the gospel with an unbeliever, you are taking part in spreading God's kingdom. And so how are you sharing the gospel these days? So again, we see that our requests to God are met with a commitment to see them first fulfilled in our own lives. So when you pray, you're not just praying for God to move, but you're praying for God to move you. So when you pray, pray for his kingdom reign. And when you pray, pray for his divine will, knowing that that will require your own death and that will require your own movement prompted by God. Now, here's another important takeaway. As you think about the first three that we just listed, notice that they've all been God work. Father, glorify your name. That was the first request. Second request, Father, bring your kingdom reign. Thy kingdom come. Third request, Father, let your will be done. Bring your will down to earth. Christ is making his point strongly. When you pray, put God's glory, reign, and will in front of your glory, reign, and will. That's a fundamental shift in how we pray. Because when we go to him, typically we're thinking about me, right? That's why we came, <laughs> right? Think about anybody else, we're the came. So we showed up because we were thinking about us. And so... But now Jesus is telling us, no, put him in front of your prayers. Put his glory, put his reign, put his will in the very front of your prayers. Now he moves to the prayers for us, the request for us. He says, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. This petition is a petition of provision. But it is a very intentional petition for provision. We are given more insight into this petition for provision in the book of Proverbs. Listen to this. Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. It says this. Listen closely. Two things I ask of you, talking to the Lord. Deny them not to me before I die. And then he says this. Listen. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, the wisdom here is very helpful for us. This is a simple request in prayer. Give me what I need to keep my heart fixed on you. Give me what I need to keep my heart fixed on you. Lord, you know if I don't eat, I'm going to start having temptation to go and rob somebody, take their chicken, right? <laughs> so let me have my daily chicken, right? At least let me have, let me have, a, let me have a leg, right? But Lord, you know if I, if, if, if I get too much, I might start getting boosted up in the head, right? Drip game might get too strong, and I might start looking around and say, nah, y'all can't hang with me anymore. Some of y'all don't know what drip game. Ask your kids, right? Ask your kids. And so it might be too strong, and so it's like, now you can't hang with me anymore. And so, and so Lord, don't give me that either, right? Give, give, me, give me exactly what I need. 
to stay close to you, to keep my heart fixed on you. See, extreme poverty, especially when it's surrounded by means, can snatch our attention from God, pushing us to extreme ends, to try to put food on the table, robbery, prostitution, drug dealing. And so we pray, give us our daily bread. Help me be able to make ends meet. But at the same time, on the other hand, extreme wealth can snatch our attention from God. Pushing us to pride and pushing us to ungratefulness, pushing us to self-reliance, independence from God, arrogance, and, and an unwillingness to be without comfort and ease. Let me show you a small way that this plays out in the culture of wealth. Many of us resist. God-born opportunities to make kingdom impact in the life of someone around us if the opportunity isn't comfortable enough for us. Hey, you want to go to so-and-so's house and um, share Jesus with him? I don't know. I mean, so-and-so's house isn't really that clean. Hey, would you like to walk more closely with so-and-so to help them grow more and more in Jesus? Well, I would, but, but man, that, man, have you smelled that guy? Just carries this unbearable smell. It's just so hard to be around him. Hey, you interested in hitting the neighborhood and sharing Jesus and inviting some folks to Bible study or something like that? Well, I mean, I, I would, but, I mean, it's just so hot. I mean, I would, but it's just so cold. Extraordinary wealth. Extraordinary privilege, extraordinary comfort, extraordinary ease can produce in us, if we are not careful, extraordinary disregard for lostness, extraordinary self-sufficiency and self-reliance, extraordinary pride, extraordinary coldness, and extraordinary distance from God and his mission. Can you ever think of a moment in your life where your craving for comfort, your commitment to protect the privileges you've been given, your hunger and your thirst for more stuff has caused you to shy away from a clear work that God was pushing you towards? You know somebody that's in need of what you got, but it's pushing you to lose some ease and some comfort, and so you shy away. Maybe it was the fear of the, of the discomfort that kept you from serving that person, introducing them into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe it was the desire for more that caused you to keep your mouth shut about Christ because you didn't want to lose your status. So we pray, give us our daily bread. Lord, give us not what we want when we want it if it moves us away from you. Lord, give us what we need when we need it in order that we might stay near you. Lord, if too much leads me away from Jesus, then give me less. And God, if too little drives me toward temptation and away from Jesus, then Lord, permit me just a tad bit more. But God, whatever I have now, give me the ability to be content even in that. But regardless of what you grant me, I just want to be near you. That's what it means to pray. Lord, give us this daily bread. Just give me what I need to stay near you. So when you pray, pray for his provision. He says, lead us not into temptation, verse 13. First things first, Jesus does not actually tempt you. Jesus' half-brother, James, his natural half-brother, 
James shares these words of wisdom in his letter, James chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And then he says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Temptation is not given to you by God. Temptation instead is birthed from one of three places. From Satan, who we often call the tempter. From the world that has been corrupted by sin, and that being all the people and systems and things in the world can tempt us. But then also from ourselves. We call that the flesh, that nature in us that is prompting us to move away from God. So Jesus' brother helps us again when he says in verse 14 of that same chapter, in that same letter, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this request is best understood as a request for God's protection from that. God's protection from the world, God's protection from the devil, God's protection from ourselves. For his power to say no to the sin that lurks in us and say no to the sin that lurks around us. See, we need Jesus to say no to sin. You ain't stopping without him. We need Jesus to say no to sin. We need him to say no to our unbelief. We need him to say no to our sexual lust that drives us to seek satisfaction outside of the confines of biblical marriage. We need him to say no to our greed for money and our desire for one more drink and our craving for one more bite. We need him to say no to our bad attitude. We need him to say no to our selfishness that keeps tearing up relationships around us with Christian brothers and sisters. We need him to say no to our appetite for applause that leads us to fearing men more than we fear God. So pray for his protection. And lastly, when you pray, pray for his forgiveness. He says in verse 12, forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. For if you forgive others their trespasses in verse 14, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now this is one of the hardest requests that Jesus instructs us to pray. But it's one of the most important requests that Jesus instructs us to pray. Because it is one of the greatest litmus tests for us in, in determining whether or not we truly get the gospel. Refusing to pray, forgive us as we forgive others, is a demonstration that we have yet to get the gospel like we are. See, Jesus helps us better understand the weight of this in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, there's this servant who owes this king this great debt. He goes to the king and he says, I wish to have my account settled with you. And he says, buddy, you owe 10,000 talents. It's a lot of money. What are you talking about? 
And the servant says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything back. Now understand, 10,000 talents on the servant's wages can never be paid back. It's out of his realm. It's out of his reach. He can make the promise, but he can't accomplish it. But the king, nevertheless, the master, nevertheless, rather, says, okay. And he went out, and the servant leaves, having his debt completely forgiven by the master. But along the way, as he is going out, he found another servant who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a very small amount, not significant, a few days' wages. But compared to the 10,000 talents, it's a drop in the bucket. And instead of saying, hey, man, I've been forgiven so much. Brother, don't worry about it. Me and you are good. He begins to choke that servant and says, pay what you owe. That servant says the same thing to him that he said to his master. Please permit me more time and I'll pay you back. But he says, no. He put him in prison and said, you're going to stay there until you pay this debt, making it even more difficult to pay the debt. And so the other servants that were watching, they went back and they told the master, hey, you won't believe what the guy that you just forgave 10,000 talents just did to the guy that owed him 100 denarii. And so the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which he never could. And Jesus closes that story and he says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so what Jesus is saying is that before you lock up and say, no, I'll never forgive, think for a moment about what you've been forgiven. See, part of the reason why you can pray this prayer is because you've been forgiven. Part of the reason that you can go to God and you can go to God and say, our Father who art in heaven, our Father, my Father, is because you've been forgiven. Part of the reason that you can say your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and have confidence that, does it, that that doesn't mean you being obliterated and going to hell is because you've been forgiven. Part of the reason that you can pray give us this day our daily bread and have confidence that God time and time and time and day and day and day after day, after day, and month, after month, after month, is going to provide that daily bread is because you've been forgiven. Part of the reason that you can pray, Father, forgive me my debt, is because you've been forgiven. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay your debt so that you can say, Father, forgive me my debt. And so to receive all of that blessing 
to receive all of that mercy, to receive all of that grace, despite the fact that we all know daily, daily we trample on it. Daily we break his law. Daily we sin against him. Daily we do something that he has instructed us explicitly not to do. And yet he continues to forgive. To receive all of that and then to respond to another, I will not and never forgive you, is to miss the very point of the gospel. It's to miss what you've been given. And so when you pray, Father, forgive, Father, forgive me my debt as I forgive others of their debts, it is an acknowledgement of what you've been given. And it's a solemn request that he continue to do what he's been doing, which is to continue to forgive. And Lord, because I've been forgiven, I will continue to forgive. And so this prayer is, is a prayer um, that, that ends on that, on that ideal of forgiveness because that is, that is the very fabric of the gospel. That's what, that's what ties all the rest of the prayer together. It's this idea that we've been forgiven so much. And because we've been forgiven so much, we have, we have the ability to go to God and we have the ability to make the request known that we've made known in the other verses ahead or before that. So we can pray this prayer because of the grace that's found in the gospel, amen? But as we pray this prayer, let us also live this prayer by walking in that grace and demonstrating that grace to others around us, amen?